Who is wise? The one who learns from others. Welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. This is a podcast where long-form conversation allows us to connect with those who inspire us beyond small talk and social media posts we're bombarded with on a daily basis. Join me on a journey where I speak to people from all backgrounds with different perspectives, each sharing their stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Corian, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Did you know that 9 to 12% of eating disorders are between females 5 to 80 years old? Did you also know that Jewish girls in particular could be up to double as likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder? Ladies and gentlemen, we are facing an eating disorder pandemic that only got worse since the COVID pandemic. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Marcy Forta, She is the founder and director of Atsmi. Atsmi offers programs for prevention for the girls, for their parents, and for the educators. As a leading authority on eating disorder education and awareness within the Jewish Orthodox adolescent community, Marcy writes and lectures extensively about eating disorder awareness and prevention. Marcy sits down with me to talk about the prevalence of eating disorders how to recognize a potential eating disorder, what we can do to prevent them from happening in the first place, what are some of the treatment plans, and so much more. What are some of the ways young girls and women can have healthy self-esteem, self-compassion, a positive body image, and healthy relationships? Well, tune in to episode 60 of Soul Sessions with KK to find out. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I am here with Dr. Marcy Forta of Atsmi, and I'm very excited to talk about this topic with her. It's so, so important. And I, I have her here today to educate us and make us aware of a huge problem, not just in our community, but in many, many communities across the country. So Dr. Marcy, welcome to the show. Thank you for being Thank here. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So you're the director and founder of Atsmi. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization you founded and why you felt a need to have this organization? Sure. Thank you. Um, So I work in eating disorders. I actually, I'll go back a little minute. We, I had a clothing, a women and girls clothing store and I kind of watched, it was um, about 12 years young girls coming into young women bodies, uh, they're changing bodies, how they felt about that, how mothers, after they had children, uh, you know, apologizing for their bodies, there's a lot of stress and struggle around their body image, how they felt about their bodies. And when I sold the store, um, it really resonated with me. I just, I watched this struggle and I actually personally suffered um, from anorexia when I was a teen. And so it really resonated with me. I felt horrible about why everyone has the same struggle. So I thought to myself, what can we do to make a change. Um, So I decided to go into prevention because I feel like if we can head off the devastating illnesses because they're very complicated and difficult in their onset and in their treatment that we can do something more and help people in a a higher level way. So um, I took a long time to study prevention programs. They are scientifically proven to work when they're properly implemented and when you target the right, um, you know, the the right, issues, factors, and things like that. So we have our own unique factors in our communities. Um, and so I learned a lot about prevention and I trained in some of the modalities that are out there already uh, in both the secular and Jewish programs. But what I realized was that they simply don't do enough. They don't go far enough. Um, they're not really created with our perspective, sometimes in mind, our cultural sensitivities in mind. And they only look at eating disorders versus self-compassion, um, self-esteem, you know, the focus on outward appearances. There's a lot of other parts to this emotion regulation. So that's why I created Atsmi to do more. And our vision is kind of to allow each and every Jewish teenage girl to find and accept her unique self. So specifically our programs are designed to help increase self-compassion, body acceptance, reduce that focus on outward appearance and support healthy relationships. And we do that with a three-pronged approach. We have curriculum for the schools. We have curriculum 
for parents and for educators, because anyone who's involved in the girl's life is going to be, um, you know, some kind of an influence in that way. So um, that's what we do. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, so I noticed that you said prevention, that prevention is very important, but does Atsumi also help with girls who are already deep, deep into their eating dis disorder? Do you have any treatment plans? Uh, do you help families who are already experiencing eating disorders for a long time? So Atsumi itself does not. That's not our, our mission. I personally do do support groups with parents of uh you know, kids with eating disorders. Um, I help them try to find treatment options, um, speak with them. I don't treat patients with eating disorders, but I do do a lot of prevention, education, awareness around eating disorders and health and support and direction and guidance. Um, and that's something that I personally do, but that's not AFSCME's mission. Wonderful. And how prevalent are eating disorders today and specifically in the Orthodox Jewish community? Great question. Um, so really the numbers show, and they're going up, but the, between nine and 12% of people will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime. Um, this is just the secular community. I'm not talking about the from community or the Jewish community. So that's 29.8 million Americans or 70 million people worldwide will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime. Now, that's just a diagnosis disorder. It's not indicative of how many people are actually struggling with food issues or body image issues. Um, and then, you know, the numbers show that really about over 90% of people who have eating disorders are diagnosed between the ages of 12 and 25. So it's really a, a very sensitive time. Um, but they range from as young as five years of old to 80 years of age. So really there's a huge range, but most of them are diagnosed in that period of time. Um, and females are about twice as likely to have an eating disorder as a male. Um, but for our community, so there, we're a very insular community, right? We don't really allow a lot of empirical study and data, but there are a few studies out there that show that Jewish females, and I'm not going to say Orthodox because really the studies were more about Jewish females, are up to twice as likely to have an eating disorder, which means if you look at the high end at 12%, we could be up to 24% of us could be diagnosed with a disorder, which makes it a massive health issue, almost a crisis, because that's a quarter of us. That's, that's a very large percentage and a huge part of eating disorders are actually genetic. So up to 60% of your risk for anorexia or bulimia is genetic. Uh, for binge eating disorders, like 45%. So if you have that genetic predisposition, then something could trigger you and, and turn it into a full-blown disorder. That's very scary and interesting at the same time. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of baffled by that statement that you just made, how there are very prevalent amongst Jewish girls. Um, yes. They're twice as more likely, I think you just said, amongst Jewish girls. Why, why is that? Why do you think that is? I actually think it's the genetics, to be honest with you. You know, they say up to twice as. So the few studies that have been done have shown that we definitely are at increased risk and, and several have shown up to two times. So um, yeah, I do believe there's a genetic predisposition for whatever reason, uh, you know, for Jewish people, uh, which definitely makes it difficult. Obviously we have cultural considerations, religious considerations, but because it's Jewish, it's not necessarily from, um, yeah, there has course. to be a yeah. component, yeah. I never thought of uh, eating disorder as genetic necessarily. I always thought it maybe came about through someone bringing it on to themselves or, the environmental factors. I never, I never thought of someone being anorexic or bulimic or having binge eating disorder because their mom had it or their grandma had it. I always thought it was something cultural. It was something that people, more like a mental health disorder, but coming from society, not necessarily genetically. So that was, that's very interesting that you say that. Right. So in some ways, I, I hope that this information, like it's important. They've been doing these studies. These are recent studies that are coming out with this, where the person who did it took um, literally saliva samples from thousands and thousands of people. It doesn't matter how old they are, if they've had an eating disorder at some point in their life, just to kind of see the genetics that could contribute to it. So that's what she's doing right this minute. But what's interesting is, is that when you look at it as a, a genetic predisposition, such as diabetes or Crohn's or any autoimmune disorder, then it kind of takes the stigma away from it because it's not like someone necessarily, it's, it's their 
how their mental health challenge is being dealt with. So the onset could be for, from a variety of reasons, but it's, it's really a genetic predisposition. So then it becomes something that we can stigmatize less. And also it means that down the road, treatments can be tailored sometimes better for the genetic makeup of the person, which is a lot of what they do now in treatment plans, not for eating disorders specifically yet, but in other types of diseases. So it can be really helpful to know this. Yeah, for sure. Is, are eating disorders considered mental health disorders? Are they in yes. that category? Yes. As opposed to like, illnesses. yes. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, another interesting thing I heard is that someone can have an eating disorder and they didn't necessarily grow up with poor body image or, you know, they didn't, they didn't grow up in a home where their mom was always dieting or they, they told their child like what to eat or what not to eat. I, I had a guest mm-hmm. on the podcast who, who grew up in a home where she, her mom didn't say anything to her, nothing about eating. And mm-hmm. it, it happened to be that she had obsessive compulsive disorder. And she said that the actual, the OCD actually contributed to her eating disorder. So what do you say about that? Well, first of all, the genes are showing that for anorexia and bulimia, a lot of the genes that are um, OCD genes, which is also highly genetic, are overlapping with the anorexia and bulimia type genes. So, and often most, the vast majority of people with an eating disorder, really over 90 to 95% of them will have a co-occurring anxiety or depression or OCD disorder along with it. They will have those issues. So it doesn't, surprise me actually at all because the onset of an eating disorder could be a traumatic event for some people not always but it could just be a traumatic event and i think people think in an eating disorder that food is the problem but food is the vehicle that expresses their emotions mm. these people have complicated emotions that they don't know how to deal with and they're using the food as that vehicle to express them so um it's not about the food so you know it could be like i said a traumatic event oftentimes people with bulimia um, might have had a trauma or an abuse situation, and they don't know how to deal with those emotions. So having all those uh, binges and purges helps them kind of calm those emotions. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, for somebody who um, it, it could have been for someone with anorexia that they had the family, someone made a comment to them that just kind of triggered a whole situation, but they didn't have that in their home. It could have been in school, could have been a peer, could have been a teacher. Um, and they weren't feeling good about themselves or they were vulnerable. That's why adolescence is such a difficult stage, right? Because girls are really trying to solidify their own independence, thinking for themselves, who they're going to be. They're creating their own connection to Hashem. And uh, it's a very complicated time. So anything can throw them off their game. But for sure, uh, these conditions go hand in hand with other things. But if you have that genetic predisposition, it can be a little more complicated for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you find that nowadays eating disorders are more prevalent than they were, let's say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And why, if they are? Well, they, I mean, they definitely are, but COVID has been its own situation. You know what I'm saying? They're saying it's doubled since the 1960s, um, increasing in the younger age groups. That's what the research shows. Um, and recent studies have put diagnosed incidents of eating disorders more like at 15.3% in, in 2020. So that's that's 15.3% higher, excuse me, in 2020 overall compared with previous years. So COVID is really that isolation, that lack of support, social support, the coping strategies, like these have all pushed kind of teens over the top and elevated their risk um, for those who are more at risk. Uh, there was just a recent study from the International Study of Jour- um, International Journal of Eating Disorders, and they found that symptoms have worsened across the board, even for people who are already diagnosed with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Their, their symptoms have worsened significantly. Um, you know, and 60% incidence increases since COVID overall. They've been ha- it's really quite bad since COVID. So, um, yeah. Uh, in the United Kingdom, there was also a recent study that said. Um, that hospital cases for eating disorders were up over 84% um, in the last uh, five years with the biggest increases in p- kids aged 18 and younger. So it's, that's, I mean, it's, it's massive. NIDA has reported over 70 to 80% increase in their call lines and their, in their, in their emergency lines. So that's horrific. Uh, yeah. 
where does social media play into that? How does that factor in into the increase? Does it? Yeah, um, I well, for sure, because you have that social isolation. A lot of people are getting their social interactions on on social media, right? And social media, you know, we call people influencers specifically. That's what social media is trying to do: influence your thoughts and what you look at and what you see. And so, I think a lot of kids, especially in our communities, you know, where we don't have maybe as much social media use, but but it's increasing. I don't think they always realize how doctored images are, how long they take to get that perfect photo, how everything is simply a physical manifestation or representation. It's not anything about who the person is on the inside or other accomplishments that they've had. It's, they could take five hours to, to make themselves perfect and make the picture perfect and make all these changes to it. You know, we have a video that we show in our curriculum of Dove. The, the soap company Dove, they, ha they have something called the Self-Esteem Project. And they do some videos where they show literally how uh, before a model goes up on a billboard, what she looks like when she sits down in the chair, how they put the makeup on, how they airbrush her, how they change her cheekbones, her chin, her eyes, everything, everything. And, and it's like a 60 second, just very quick, you know, a show. And I think a picture's worth a thousand words. I just don't think people realize exactly how doctored and how changed things are. And they see this and they think, oh, their life is perfect. My life is so hard. And they don't realize everyone is struggling just the same as them. So I do think that social media plays a role because people are so sensitive, young girls, to the images that they see, pictures, things like that. They, they're much more um, in tune with those things and influenced by them. For sure. I think young girls, young women, older women, I think we're all affected by what we see. And even when like your neighbor or the people that you know come up on social media and they're in filtered images, it's very easy to show up on camera and look nothing like yourself. We have so many apps and filtered images to show how quote unquote perfect you look. And I think that affects everybody, not just young girls, for sure. I agree with you. Yeah, um, what about dieting? I mean, dieting is a very big thing right now, not just in our community, obviously, just all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. Does dieting have a big effect on someone developing an eating disorder? So what I would say is yes, but what I would call it is diet culture. And that's more than dieting. Our culture, the diet culture kind of dictates that people who are in thinner bodies are more valuable people. They're more productive people. They're better people. It gives them some kind of superiority status, right? And there's a lot of stigma against people who are heavy, not just in general, but even in employment, in, in healthcare situations, in schools. Um, so we, we blame people if they're in higher weight bodies and we, we tell people who are in lower weight bodies, we reinforce that they're better people for whatever reason that is. And so diet culture, you know, there's that there body image issues and, and appearance ideal issues and weight stigma. So we really kind of reinforce that. So many people are on diets. Uh, over 50% of people will have some kind of dieting. Most people try six, seven types of diets. The reality is, is that the studies show that 95% of diets fail within three years. So some people can keep it up for three years and some people can keep it up forever, but that's, it's a rarity um, because genetically we're all kind of predisposed to different body types. So um, what, what somebody else's body type is, and also it's not even just genetic. People have medical conditions. They have medications that they're on. They have stress in their lives. They have different types of, you know, um, places in our life that we're going through, um, phases in our life. All these things kind of contribute to where we're at. Um, and so, yes, diet, diet culture, these things definitely contribute because they put a lot of stress. And there's a ton of reinforcement. If you lose five pounds, that's all everybody notices, right? You look great you know, keep it up. What are you doing? Sometimes people think sometimes someone might be ill, God forbid. And then, and then there's, and then they lost a lot of weight and people are like, Oh, you look great, but they don't realize what they're struggling with. Yeah. And so we, we tend to reinforce this. And so, yes, it definitely makes it worse. For sure. So where do we draw the line? So what would you say would be considered disordered eating? And then when would it be an actual eating disorder? Like how do we know where to draw the line what between a diet and an eating disorder that's a great great question and it can be complicated that's the honest truth but i would say disordered eating is more of like a broad kind of term um, where you have those disturbed eating practices that are just not 
severe enough to warrant an eating disorder diagnosis. They just don't really hit those exact diagnoses, which we can go through the criteria if you want to after. But um, they really do impair their thoughts and their feelings and behaviors around food, though. They are impaired in some way. Um, sometimes we even normalize some of these disordered eating behaviors in our culture, which is part of diet culture as well, right? Maybe like, you know, I only drink, I have to drink two cups of water before I sit down for any meal, or I only eat at certain times of the day, or my food has to be in a certain order, or I'm cutting this complete thing out of my diet, even though maybe they'll cut gluten out of their diet, but they're not gluten sensitive or celiac. It's just because it's a health thing. Um, these are some disordered eating practices around food. Um, but they're not necessarily an eating disorder. Whereas when you get into an eating disorder, it's really a very severe disturbance in an eating behavior and the thoughts and the emotions around eating. Um, they come, they typically are very preoccupied with food and uh, their body weight and shape. So it's hard for them to think about anything else. Um, and also because they have that high comorbidity, you also see other issues. You'll see anxiety, like I said, depression, OCD, um, you, you'll see a lot of other issues along with it. I have a colleague who kind of developed this thing called the mindshare continuum, where if you think of the brain, um, you think of how much it can be filled with thoughts, right? And so someone with an eating disorder, their whole head, their whole brain is just filled with thoughts of their body, their shape, their weight, comparing themselves to other people, how much they weigh on the scale, what they look like, all that all the time. They have no room for anything else, which is why their relationships are impaired and their energy is lower. Uh, they have a lot of issues, but Whereas disordered eating, it's, it's there and it's considerable, but it's not quite crossed over to that place where they can't come back from it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I don't know why this just reminds me of something else. I heard something about a correlation between uh, eating disorders and alcohol abuse. Is there any correlation between that? Um, women who turn to alcohol and women who try to control their eating and all of that. Yes. I mean, I'm not going to say it's massive that I know of, but there's definitely correlation. I mean, these are people who are dealing with difficult emotions. So uh, the starvation or purging or the binges, they're a way of dealing with their emotions. The same thing with the substance abuse, right? Alcohol, drugs. This is a way for them to deal with emotions and then they get addicted to it and it's how they cope. But they're also addicted to their eating disorder. Um, the one thing I will say about an eating disorder is that when you have an, a, a substance abuse of some kind, part of how you heal from it, right, is you take it out of your life forever. With an eating disorder, you have to eat. So they have to relearn how to have a relationship with food within the context of their life because they can't take it out of their life. So it's a little harder uh, yeah. for that reason. Um, you know, it's, it's just kind of when you think of it that way, you can't take it out forever. Wow, that actually makes it much more complicated to treat because you, yeah, you, like you said, a substance abuse you're addicted to alcohol or drugs or anything like that, you have to completely take it out of your life. But with food, you need food to survive and you need food for many other things. And to treat that is so much more complicated. Wow. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Okay. So um, how does one even recognize a potential eating disorder? Right, what are absolutely. like the warning signs? Absolutely. No, you definitely, I mean, the thing is, eating disorders affect the entire body of the person. So the one thing I would like to say is that's really important to know is that, you know, studies show that if any adolescent is deprived of nutrients for even a small period of time during that important time when they're growing and they have so much brain maturation and physical changes and hormonal changes, they will experience cognitive impairment of some kind. So mentally they will be struggling in some way, um, even for a short period of time which, and it just kind of, it does follow to the, their entire body. So it's really important kind of to, to watch for and notice these things very quickly because it will turn quite quickly, especially in a teen. Um, but I would say the first thing I would do is kind of, there are four basic questions that you can think about. I don't know if you can ask them directly, but you can think about in, in relation to how you would diagnose an eating disorder. You know, does eating cause them anxiety? Um, are you so unhappy with your body? That's really all you think about. Um, do you try to control your weight by either restricting, purging, or overeating, or over-exercising? Um, and do you feel like your life is dictated literally by thoughts of food? So if you, you know, obviously start to notice these things, those would be cause for alarm. But then, of course, um, I think it's also really important to know that there's, like I said, so many signs and symptoms of an eating disorder. 
um, they can overlap with other disorders. So you kind of have to put them in context with what you're seeing with your child. And also, before I go through like some of the symptoms, it's really important to say that only 6% of people with an eating disorder are actually diagnosed as underweight. So oftentimes people think, oh, I see that girl, she's anorexic. Uh-uh, that's not how it works. And not all anorexics are actually even underweight. So it's really important that you have, you have to understand that even people in larger bodies can struggle with an eating disorder. So wow, there could be, yeah. Whole, yeah, that's like a huge thing. Cause most people think, oh, if she's heavy, she can't have an eating disorder, mm. which is why that education is so important for parents and teachers to understand what, what an eating disorder is and how you would see one. Um, but they're that whole preoccupation that we talked about around calories, food, diet, if that's all they talk about and look at and notice everybody, what they're eating on their plate and are watching everything, that's, that's definitely a sign. Um, if they refuse to eat certain foods, they skip meals, they say, oh, I only eat between this and this time of the day, or they start to become really uncomfortable around other people eating food, you might find they're hiding food wrappers or they have new food rituals or practices. These are all signs and symptoms of a possible eating disorder. Um, any extreme weight fluctuation, whether it's a gain or a loss, is definitely something you should notice. Their mood, they're definitely more withdrawn. They, they are not as social with their friends. They have extreme mood swings generally. You, you can see they feel kind of disgusted with themselves. They're very low self-esteem that's related specifically to their body image. Um, they might have a lot of stomach cramping, bloating, uh, vomiting, even not them doing it to themselves. Sometimes it's just because they can't eat, or they can't process food, they start vomiting. Uh, they might have difficulty concentrating, feel very cold, uh, have sleep issues, develop that like soft downy fur on their body. They might stop menstruating or they might have irregularities with their menstruation. And then, you know, you might just notice that they're very dizzy. If they faint, they, they, they never pass a mirror without looking at themselves in the mirror. They, um, you know, some of their, some of their blood work might be off. If you looked at, you know, if they did that, or they have issues with their mouth, if they're making themselves vomit, the acid will ruin some of their teeth. They might have issues with their teeth, hand sores, muscle weakness, lower immunity, things like that, poor wound healing. So mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. that. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot. That's really a yeah. lot. Um, what are the most common eating disorders? Any, anything more common in particular? Right. So I think we think of anorexia as the most common eating disorder. When we, when we think of eating disorders, it's actually not. It's the third most common, the third most prevalent, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that one where they really restrict their food intake. They have that intense fear of gaining weight. Most of the time they, they, they are underweight. They're, they're below a minimally normal a level for their age or their gender or their developmental trajectory, whatever that is. Um, but not always, not always. And then there's bulimia, which is when people have episodes of binge eating and a binge is basically when someone is ingesting very large amounts of food, more than most people could ingest in a short period of time. They just are not even in control of themselves when they're eating like this. And then they, they find a way to, to compensate for this behavior, either through extreme exercise, vomiting, the use of laxatives, they have to get it back out. Um, and so there's a specific amount of time that they have to engage in these behaviors in order for it to actually be bulimia, but they might do it on occasion and it might not be specifically bulimia, but it's still a disordered and an eating disorder type of behavior. And then binge eating disorder is the binges, but no compensatory behavior. So they're just eating those mass quantities of food, but they don't necessarily follow that with any other behavior. There's something called ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So we, we think of that mostly as that extreme picky eating, right? Where kids, they, they just don't want to eat anything, but they really have fear of the textures and the tastes. Um, they, they think that they're going to choke or get ill. Um, things are very, very bothersome to them. It's, it's, it's a very specific kind of thing. It's not just that they're picky. It's, it's extreme pickiness because they're afraid of the food and what it'll do to them. Um, and usually they're very underweight because they're not nourished because they won't eat the food. Um, mm -hmm. They'll only eat specific things and they, they think food will make them sick. Um, and then there's one called OSFED, which really en encompasses those ones that aren't necessarily specifically anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder because they have extremely disturbed eating habits they have that distorted body image, that overvaluation of body weight and shape, um, but they might not fit into the category that's specifically those other ones. So atypical anorexia is somebody who actually has all the, of the, the um, signs of anorexia, but they're not underweight. 
um, they might starve themselves, but they're not actually able to get down to a low weight. Some people, their, their metabolism doesn't allow it, or they have other health conditions or whatever it is, or something called a purging disorder, where there isn't necessarily a binge, but they're doing the purging behaviors throughout the day, or whenever they feel depressed or stressed, they'll, they'll use either extreme exercise, self-induced vomiting, or the use of laxatives. And then something called orthorexia nervosa, which is obsessive behaviors or obsessions around healthy foods. So sometimes people say, you know, they're, they're saying, oh no, it's all about my health, but they're extremely into that where they're cutting out large parts of their diet, or let's say they'll only, they won't eat anything manufactured, or they're, they're like, no, I can only eat this and this and this, because these are the only healthful things. It's, it really is like excessive compulsive disorder because they become obsessed with these healthy foods. And this also is a type of eating disorder. So. I, I, wow. I also, I noticed like people who, who have to eat certain foods or take out certain foods out of their quote unquote diet because of legit health reasons. You know, they have a condition, I don't know, like Crohn's or, an autoimmune disease and they they can't eat let's say sugar or carbohydrates what do they do like can that lead into the eating disorder if they're physically sick and then they they cut out certain foods i mean yes based on the tendency and the um, you know surrounding situation it definitely could be could come into an eating disorder but you don't see that as often when they've restricted their diet due to health reasons like if they have diabetes and they're on a very specific diet where they have to count their sugars, like you said, or Crohn's, um, you see that less unless there's a lot of other anxiety ridden things going on at the same time or OCD type things going on and it becomes a coping mechanism for them. Mm -hmm. um, but it could, I'm not saying it doesn't, I, I, I've not seen a ton of it happen, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Right. And what you said something about over-exercising is over-exercising considered a category of an eating disorder or does that like lump into like one of the, the eating disorders so that you're talking about? Categorize it in the purging disorder if you wanted to, because they just feel like they have to get rid of every calorie that goes into their body. Um, you know, uh, thinking that, oh, you know, I was good today, therefore I'm allowed to eat or I have to get rid of everything in my body. You know, that, that is a type of, of purging disorder if they exercised excessively hours a day or never sat still or, you know what I mean, when it's out of control or it's, it's in their mind all the time, you know, how can I burn out this calorie? One more calorie, what can I do? You know, I have to bounce my leg, even if I have to sit down, I have to swing something. Yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, do eating disorders ever go unnoticed? Like, can someone have an eating disorder pretty much their whole life? Like they had it as a teenager, they get married, they have kids and they don't even really notice it themselves that they have an eating disorder and they're just living with an eating disorder. Does that happen often? Do you see it? It's definitely something that happens for sure. I mean, people who tend to get the severe eating disorders will stop menstruating, generally won't be ovulating and will struggle more to have children. But um, you, you definitely see people who have hidden it from their husbands. They might be a, a, a per, somebody who purges a lot or has the binge and the purging and they go in the bathroom and they clean up after themselves and their husband doesn't know. Um, generally, it'll come out at some point. I don't think that they can go on for 30, 40 years and nobody sees anything. What I would say in schools is, which is why I want to teach the educators a little more, uh, peers are the ones who notice, friends of the girl, the, they're the ones who actually bring it to the attentions of the teacher or the principal or the social worker in the school, because they're the ones who spend the time with the girl. And generally there are other changes when you have an eating disorder, other than the fact you, you have this obsession about weight, but you see there are all these other types of changes that can happen. Um, so you're right. I mean, it could be that it never went noticed. Probably it would be in a situation where a family, the mother might have struggles with her own struggles with food and body image. And she didn't notice that her daughter's so struggling so much with it, or the teachers didn't notice, but, uh, and it's, it's entirely possible that people even notice, but she didn't want to get help for it. or she wasn't ready to, to, to resolve it. And it's her coping mechanism and she'll continue it throughout her life. It's, it's absolutely possible. You know, when sure. it gets to dangerous stages, they have to be hospitalized. I mean, all types of systems in their body shut down and are stressed and, you know, um, right. but you could. Right. So is there a way for, if a mom or a peer or anyone notices something, how, how can this be stopped? 
from becoming a full blown eating disorder? Is there a way to like catch it early on and prevent it from happening like fully? Well, so that's why I think prevention programs are so important in school because they do um, show empirically that they have, that they do work. But if someone is already in that risk yeah. phase where you're worried that that's happening. Like um, stage early, one, you know? Yeah. So early detection is is 100% your best bet, which is why parents are so, cru- it's so crucial for parents to understand the signs and symptoms and some, just to have some knowledge about what's going on with their daughter's bodies at this time, because if they even think that they might have a problem, they're their best advocate, right? We know our children the best. Um, we, we are definitely their best advocate. So what I tell parents is don't, don't second guess yourself, go right away to the doctor, go right away to have a medical evaluation, a psychological evaluation. Worst they can say is they're fine, but sometimes doctors are wrong. And unfortunately, Mm. a lot of medical health professionals are not trained in eating disorders and they don't know what the complications are and they don't know what the signs and symptoms are, the early ones. And so if a mother suspects that her child has this, she might have to push and that's okay. We do that all the time as mothers. You have to push. You have to say, listen, I go to a different doctor or say, you know, I really want this evaluation anyway. I believe that this is a problem. Um, I would I would say to any mother, you're your child's best advocate. Educate yourself, ask questions, don't second guess yourself, and go get that help right away. That definitely increases, you know, the likelihood of, of the shorter duration of it. For they're, sure. they're true, but it will definitely make it easier. Right. So you said you said that going to a medical doctor or your child's primary care physician won't necessarily help because they might not know the signs and symptoms. So where can a mom take their child if they see there's like early signs of an eating disorder? Where can they go to get help if it's not their doctor? Right. So, I mean, what I would definitely say about eating disorders is that you have to go to somebody who's trained in the modalities of treatment and experienced and recognizes the signs and symptoms as they come on. There are, you know, there are types of assessments that the, that the girls can take um, at, at, at a mental health professional who is an eating disorder specialist. I know that people are tempted to think that, okay, so my daughter has anxiety, so I'll, I'll treat her anxiety separately, and then I'll treat her eating disorder, but you, you cannot separate these two things. They're the same thing. They're stemming from the same place. They need the same help. So you, I know in our communities, we like to have a from therapist, and sometimes there's fears that they'll, you know, undermine some of their um, from religious things. And, but the reality is, is that in this situation for this type of illness, you have to go to somebody who's trained in the modalities uh, that know how to treat eating disorders, that understand how an eating disorder works. There's a healthy self and there's a, there's a sick self. So sometimes you see your child and they're perfectly fine and normal and they're the loving child that you know, but then there's a sick part of that child. And that part of the child really needs help because the parent's job is to love this child unconditionally and support them in this journey while the mental health professionals, the physical health professionals, the dietitians, the nutritionists, their team is the one who's dealing with the, the sick self. Um, and, and people with anorexia often have a voice even in their health, head telling them, you know, you're worthless, you're horrible, you're this. And it's a voice that's there 24 seven, that, that they're, they dream about this voice. It's in their head. So a parent doesn't really necessarily know what the child is going through, but the person who's trained and specialized will be able to assess that find it and help them for sure there's a team of people who are helping the child or the adults mm-hmm. right thanks Absolutely. for clarifying that yeah so marcy you were just talking about how if uh, a mom or a friend or anyone detects an eating disorder or the early signs of one you get help right away and there's like a team of doctors and specialists that can take care of the situation and we don't like treat anxiety and eating disorder separately like it's all connected together okay so can you just describe like what a treatment plan would look like and what the difference between an inpatient place inpatient clinic versus an outpatient clinic would be and like what like what they would need depending on the situation. Sure. So you're right. There are two basic types. There are inpatient and outpatient, but within that, there are a couple, several different situations because there's intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization and complete inpatient and outpatient, right? So 
outpatient is always that first line of defense where you might start to see a therapist once or twice a week, you know, seeing how, how, how severe it is, how, how disturbed the child is with it, what's happening, if that's enough, if they're connecting, if they're able to make that work, that would be the first line of defense. Um, intensive outpatient means more sessions because more significant intervention is needed than a single session or two a week can give them, right? So they're going to be having more intensive outpatient, maybe they're five days a week with their therapist, um, something like that. Um, but if they get worse or they're medically unstable, then you're in a different situation, right? Um, because then they really need to be watched and they need to be refed sometimes, or they need to be uh, given fluids and, and, and watch that they don't purge or they don't do some of these behaviors that are, that are so dangerous for them. So then they might go inpatient, which would be 24 hours a day. They would be in the hospital, uh, you know, with a team of people who are watching them, um, watching what they eat, when they go to the bathroom, that they don't go in the bathroom like by themselves because they might be doing things they're not supposed to be doing in the bathroom, that they don't hide food, they have to be weighed. Um, it's a much more intense type of treatment. Um, and then partial hospitalization is somebody who, it's more than intense outpatient because they need maybe five or six hours a day where they're really in with the group and they're seeing their therapist and they're having a meal or two a day with everybody. Um, and so they're giving them more, uh, but they don't stay in the hospital. So there's kind of all different kinds of levels. And so, like, as we said, you know, you need that team, you need the doctor, you need the mental health professional, you need dietitian, nutritionist, you need all kinds of people on your team to help you, the nurses, um, you know, everyone has to be there to help. Um, and based on the issue, because eating disorders are highly personalized, I can't tell you that one modality of treatment will work. Some people use uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, some people use FBT, which is family-based treatment. Some people use that EMDR for like a trauma-based situation, uh, individual therapy, they do family therapy, you know, group therapy, nutritional rehabilitation, um, medical services and interventions. It has to be highly personalized to the issue, to the, to the person. Uh, are they ready for treatment yet? Are they actively participating in, in their um, getting better or are they still you know, pushing back and not ready to let go of the eating disorder, yet it's still a really important coping mechanism for them. So it really depends where they are in a lot of ways, mentally, physically, emotionally. Mm -hmm. And how long, I mean, I know every situation is different, but how long can treatment take? Like what's the most it can take and what's the least? I mean, I've heard stories of people where they, they were sick for 15, 20 years, very sick in and out of hospitals very, very ill, almost end of life situations, but I've heard of stories that are much shorter, you know what I mean? And those people still recovered. Um, so I guess I would say it really depends how long a person has been sick before they got treatment, how uh, entrenched are they with their eating disorder? Um, how, how sick are they with it? How committed are they to getting better? Are they ready? Have they hit that rock bottom point where they're like, I, I see this doesn't serve me. My life is too hard like this. I wanna make a change. Um, do they have the right support? right? Are they getting help from home? Do they have the right treatment te team? These are also factors. And then, you know, what are their comorbidities? What other psychoses or illnesses are going along with the eating disorder? Um, the less right. those are obviously, the shorter that it can take. So like I said, you, like you said, each case is so individual. Um, you might start to see improvement in a couple months, but relapse rates are high. It might be mm. years. It really depends on the child and the situation. That's what I would say. But I would, I would like to also say that there are so many people who got better. As soon as the child is really ready, the person is ready to get better. There's so many things out there to support them. It's, it's more about getting them to that place where they see that the eating disorder no longer serves them and that they can live their life beautifully, wonderfully, happily without it. Um, and then they, that turnaround is usually much faster. Mm -hmm. That was actually my next question. Like, even if someone is fully, fully treated, they come out of the rehab, they come out of the clinic and they're fully healed. You know, what are the chances of relapse? Is it very high? And can they live without an eating disorder for the rest of their life? Or is there always a chance of them going back to that? I would say there are many people who live without it. I would say most people have a relapse though. However, at some point, the, the, when they seem to be completely cured, those first 18 months are the most delicate mm. time. The relapse is higher during those first 18 months after treatment. Um, and 
you know, I think studies show pretty much between 35 and 60% of people will relapse at some point, not forever necessarily. Um, but it just means that it's two steps forward, one step back. Um, yep. This has been something that's, that served them because of their emotions and because of their issues. And so it's really hard to just completely let go of it. And, and also because of the fact that insurance has been a struggle because they don't always recognize that even if you get someone back to their normal weight or you get them in a place where they haven't binged and purged in, in, in a week or two, that's where treatment starts because people with eating disorders are nutritionally deficient. People who are purging, even if they're eating a ton of food, they're not absorbing the nutrients. They are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not mentally sound because of the fact that they're malnourished. Um, and so until you've actually refed them and they're keeping the food in for an extended period of time, they're not even ready to accept the therapy yet. They're, they're mentally not cognitively like in a place where they can do that. So um, I think it's important to realize that the refeeding is kind of stage one. Um, and then after that, you know, then you really get down to the nitty gritty of how can we support this person? And there's something called an eating disorder recovery coach, which I think are really wonderful uh, tools for people who are finished with their therapy, but they still need a little extra support beyond a therapist. And these people will go shopping with people who are recovering from an eating disorder. They'll sit with them throughout their meals. They'll help them cook or go shopping for their food. Um, they'll go through their clothes with them again and try them on in their closet because they need these type of supports that you don't think about, right? Okay, so the, they, they did the therapy and they said that they're okay, but now they're thrown out into the world and they're on their own. And, and the thoughts that they had are coming back because they're in new situations. So um, sometimes a recovery coach can be really helpful once they've gotten to a, a good place in their therapy. It's a very good support. Yeah, there was something you said before. I just wanted to go back. You said how there's a dietitian, a nutritionist, mental health professional, doctor, all of these people who help uh, a patient. I, I never really understood the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. Yeah. And I, I wanted to know if going to a dietitian or a nutritionist as a teenager to get to a weight, a healthy weight or to a desired weight, does that ever, you know, contribute to, let's say, an eating disorder going to one as a teenager? That's a really, really not to be controversial, part. not to be too controversial. No, it, it is difficult because, well, I believe a dietitian is certified. They, they are, you know, accredited and certified and have to take state licensures and stuff like that. A nutritionist um, learns a lot about nutrition and is very well educated, but it's a different type of licensing. So I wouldn't say they necessarily go to both a dietitian and a nutritionist, but they probably need one or the other. Um, but, but the reality is, is that, it, so I, I don't know if you've heard a little bit about health at every size, intuitive eating. Yes, dietitians can contribute if they're very rigid in their thinking about, so you can have three carbs a day and two proteins. When they create a diet plan that's going to, for somebody who's at risk or who has some issues with, around their food already and body image, then these very strict rules um, and rigidity can, can absolutely contribute because it contributes to really weight stigma and diet culture. If they teach them to how to have a healthy relationship with food, that's different. Um, and how to support their body and how to make healthy choices that might be nutritionally sound. I think in our communities, um, we sometimes create unhealthy relationships with food when we use food as a reward. So mm -hmm. in school, sometimes you know, we give a treat if you I don't know. Um, for my boys, it was go to Minion five days a week on time. They got a Danish at the end of the week or whatever it is. Um, it's you, they, they associate food. You, you are creating an unhealthy relationship with food and when it's reward based, when we make foods out, when we moralize food, food is good. Food is bad. Um, when you moralize it or you use it as a reward or punishment, you're actually messing up your child's relationship with food. They don't know what it's for. They don't know how to use it properly as a tool for their health. Um, we have to be so careful how we treat food in our homes. Uh, you know, we moderation is really key. Obviously, no one's saying, okay, let them eat sugar all day, every day. But the reality is, is that they have to kind of be in tune with their bodies and what their bodies need and when they need it. Um, and in order to do that, obviously, you have to give them good, healthy choices in your home when we make food out to be, so if you, you know, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of grandparents, you know, if you lose 
uh, 10 pounds, every pound you lose, I'll pay you this much money. Or if you lose 10 pounds, then you'll be allowed to go to camp. Or, you know, girls come back from seminary in our home, we're a size two. When you get back to that size two, I'll buy you clothing. You know, when you create this relationship with food or you tell them they're not allowed to eat food that other people are eating because they need to go on a diet. And I'm sure it's coming from a loving place. They don't want them to struggle with what they struggled from. They're not doing it meanly or, you know, purposefully, but they don't realize that this creates this unhealthy relationship with their child with food. Um, so I think sometimes standard dietitians might, you know, go by the food pyramid or BMI, which is a whole nother conversation, mm-hmm. um, to have because it's really not an accurate or good measurement for someone's, uh, weight or, you know, what they should look like. But the point is, is that, yes, we kind of have to change the dialogue around food, weight, appearance that has to change. For sure. For sure. I also noticed like, even like religious girls who go to an old girls school and they go to seminary after a lot of the focus is on shiduchim and getting married and getting ready. I hear so many stories about uh, girls when they enter high school around like 10th, 11th grade, the focus of their being starts to be all about like, when you leave high school, you got to think about shiduchim and getting married and Unfortunately, from what I hear, many girls are being involved in a lot of dieting, overexercising, getting into certain getting to certain weights, and their moms are actually contributing to it because their moms are the ones who are telling them they have to eat certain foods to get to a quote unquote healthy weight or a weight that is quote unquote, attractive. So what, what can we do about that? How can moms prepare their girls for marriage because they want their girls to get married, right? Yeah. But not make their girls have an eating disorder in a way. No, no, you're, it's a great question. It's a hard question. Um, So I guess there's a few parts to the question. Number one is what I would what we're trying to do with Atsmi is part of what we do in our 12th grade curriculum is talk about um, healthy boundaries, healthy relationships, kind of defining your priorities um, and things that are important to you because we want the girls to understand what a healthy relationship looks like, what they're looking for in a relationship, how to be, how to do, how to have give and take in a relationship. Um, so, so I think what we would try to do is give the girls tools going forward for themselves that they might not have. So that's number one. So when they can kind of determine what they're looking for and what's really important to them. And of course we talk about appearance, ideal and body image with them as well. But I think that this gives them a leg up and these girls will be tomorrow's mothers. So how they talk to their daughters will be different about their bodies. Um, when we, we give our girls a lot of mixed messages in schools at home. We tell them that, you know, it's our, it's our internal connection to Hashem. It's our neshama. It's our inner part of our body that is really important, right? That's what's important and people should see and what you should look for and love. But yet we still focus a ton on our appearance and our externals and you should be this, but yet, okay, you should be a good cook, but you shouldn't eat the food. You should be a baker, but you shouldn't eat that. You know, you shouldn't eat that. You should still be thin, but you should still be good in all these ways. So we kind of model this superwoman ideal ourselves to our own children accidentally, right? We can have kids and then go bounce back. We should bounce back to our weight. We should bounce back to, you know, everything in the house should be perfect and having company and our, doing our kids homework and sending them to school and dress perfectly and the house is clean. I don't think our kids sometimes notice that we struggle. And so I think modeling is a really important thing that they pick up on. Um, we, we model behaviors that are unrealistic. So, so we might have these meltdowns or struggles that, that our daughters don't see. Um, I think we have to be more honest with our kids about what life is like and the expectations of what we need, they need to look for and know you're right. It's a problem with the shit system that that's what they're looking for. But if we instill in our daughters, self-compassion, self-esteem, body image, you know, positive body image, um, then they feel better about themselves. And so you're right. They might not get this shit or that shit but it creates a whole different level of feeling about themselves when that, that might not work out. And when all the girls feel that way, then, then the system has to change because the girls are feeling more positive about who they are. And I think one of the biggest risk factors in the studies that I conducted um, in our communities is this thing that I, I term it expectation of homogeneity. 
that our girls are expected to kind of be and do and aspire to the same things. But we're not meant to be the same. Hashem did not create us the same. He doesn't want us to do be the same. Within the realm of being from, you don't have to do all the same things. So I think girls who kind of don't fit that mold feel very stressed. Why am I different? They don't realize they have so many beautiful capabilities, abilities, talents. We want them to see these things. So I think when they recognize themselves better, it helps. I think the moms, right. I think the moms of those girls also stress out even more where maybe the girl is happy-go-lucky and she doesn't necessarily feel like there is a problem, but you know, the girl comes back from seminary or she goes to Israel for a couple of months. She comes back, she put on some weight, she gained 10, 15 pounds. The mom starts to get nervous. She starts to get worried. So it's more of like the mom's projection. She's projecting her anxiety on the girl, whether the girl is five years old, 15, 20. Yes. I, I, I've spoken to many moms who get very worried about obesity, uh, their child being obese, because when your child or your teenage daughter is obese, it's, there's a disadvantage to that. In terms of like, you know, she feels left out with certain girl groups. She has a more difficult time with Shiduchim. She has a more difficult time with various aspects in our community or culturally. Because as you said, diet culture promotes that thin is best, thin is better. So, I mean, what can, what can we do as, as parents to teach our girls about self-compassion, body acceptance, all of these things, but also in a way, we, we also don't want our girls to be obese, right? Like, of course, of course. is a problem as well. Of course. Of do course. you understand my question? I do. And there's a difference between obesity and being overweight or, or what, what the, you know, our society terms overweight. Um, but like I said before, so the reality is 95% of diets fail. So when you make your child completely uptight about their bodies and uh, about what they look like, it usually doesn't serve them positively. What happens is they'll go on, wait, you'll take them to Weight Watchers or you'll t- put them on a diet that works for a little while and then they'll either gain all that weight back and then some. If you teach them healthy habits, if we teach them about joyful movement, we move our bodies because it makes us feel good, because we have to move them every day. We nourish our bodies with things that are healthful for our bodies. We have to change the whole conversation around food and what it's for, because you know you can make your child starve themselves to get into a shit off. They'll, they'll lose that weight, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that weight goes right back on after they get married or after they have one child or whatever it is. And, um, and they don't feel good about themselves. And we, we put on them this idea that if you're thin, you will be happy. Your life will fall into place. Everything will be good. Um, and so it's completely unrealistic. I agree with you. Of course, obesity comes with health. There are issues with health, but sometimes we assume that everything has to do with obesity. Um, you know, there, there, it isn't proven that, um, you know, if you have obesity, you will get diabetes or you will get this. You're right, there are higher risks of complications, but what they're also finding now in all the studies and the intuitive eating movement and health in every size is that they're, we don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg sometimes. Sometimes it's a predisposition for one that kind of contributes to the other. And so um, if you make healthier choices, like I said, you, you, you move more often, you make better choices that nourish your body better without it being a specific diet, right? Because when we just have to cut out a whole food group or all sugar or all things, then we, we might do well for six months or a year, but at some point we're going to go back to like, I can't live with this anymore. It's too much for me. Um, and we're a very food-based culture, Shabbos, Yom Tiv, Shabbos parties, um, we have Kedushim all the time, you know, for, for, for Ufra, for Bar Mitzvah. Um, these, these are really hardships for people who are struggling with their body image. Um, and so you're right. You have to find that balance. But when you panic about your child's obesity, you're kind of contributing to the fact that they're going to eat in secret because they can't eat in front of you. So they have to be good in front of you. Um, if you kind of love and accept them and try to work with the intuitive eating and changing our attitudes around food and how we how we talk about food and what we use food for, then you're going to have better results than if you force dieting on them because it doesn't seem to have the same outcome, a positive outcome anyway. Wow. 
Thank you for explaining that really clearly. So just to round off right now, um, I do, I want parents to know, to have the resources and just everything at the, to their advantage of how they can help, how they can contribute to healthy eating habits, joyful movements, all of that. Mm-hmm. What can parents do right now, moms, dads, peers, educators, how can we all help our girls, even ourselves? Because many moms, many adult women are struggling with this right now. What can we yeah. do? I mean, this, you know, the numbers are that 80 to 90% of us have had body image issues at some point in our life. I mean, it's obviously it's a struggle that we all know intimately. It's not an out there kind of thing. We all struggle with it at some point. Um, you know, first of all, that's why education awareness prevention is so critical, which is what OTSME is doing. Um, and the program for the parents and the program for the educators kind of highlights it. One thing I would say primarily is that if a mother is struggling with her own body image issues and she thinks she's hiding it from her daughter, she is not. Um, Children learn by modeling. So actually studies show that girls who are um, younger than eight or 10 years old, they actually associate their bodies. They associate with their mother so highly that they they eat like their mother. They, They assume their body looks like their mother's body. That's what the studies show. So girls who are younger than eight years old are already trying. They already hate their bodies They're already thinking they need to diet. Um, if they're, that's how their mother feels. If they, it doesn't matter what the mother says. They, they see what the mother does, how she walks by the mirror, how she talks to herself, how she talks on the phone. They hear all these things and they absorb it. So I would say get help yourself with your own body image issues. That's number one. Um, number two, you know, change the conversation around food. Let's stop talking to people every time you see them. You look beautiful to little girls. Your dress is so pretty. Your hair bow so pretty. You look so cute. We have to change how we talk. It's so good to see you. What have you been up to? Um, it looks like you, you know, you you did this or you worked so hard. We have to try to think of things that are outside the box instead of just saying you look good because. Like I said, sometimes people lost weight because they're sick. And so if you tell them they look good, then you're reinforcing the fact that they don't feel good. It's a horrible thing to say to somebody who's ill, who lost a lot of weight. Um, We have to be so sensitive how we speak, how we speak about food, how we use food. Um, And our kids have to know that we love them no matter what. So obviously there are rules in our home. We have certain things that are not crossable lines. I'm not saying that that goes out the window. I'm simply saying that they should know that your love is not dependent on what they look like, what they weigh these are not things that are debatable. Like we love you the way you are, whatever we are doing, we're doing, you know, we're trying to help you. We're trying to support you. We're trying to love you. Um, when they feel like their love is dependent on looking a certain way, doing a certain thing, behaving a certain way, then the relationship dynamic is, is messed up in a way that it's harder for you to have a positive relationship with your child. Um, because it's all about reward and punishment. Um, so I would say, that's, those are, I guess, three high level things. You know, I, I do do a class on that where we talk about how to change the conversation, what we can do. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful when, when groups of parents get together of uh, parents of girls and talk about like their girls issues and problems that they're facing and how they can speak differently to their girls or how they can support them and make them feel better. These are important conversations to keep having. Uh, because we've all struggled with the same things and it's nobody's fault. There's no blame here. It's just that we have to change it because it hasn't served us and it's dangerous in a lot of ways. So I guess, I guess that's what I would say. We have to take weight stigma out of schools. That's big in the education realm. That's big. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, we give the message to the girls that how they look or what they do with their bodies has to do with what happens to cholesterol. If we are struggling with something bad happening, uh, sometimes it's a woman's fault. She wasn't sneeze enough. She didn't do this enough, that enough. You know, these conversations have to be changed because we, that's just not something we can process or our girls can understand. Um, and this creates this mixed message perception, stigma, all these things contribute to eating disorders and body sure. image issues. For sure. And I know you have uh, prevention programs for schools. Um, what about for parents? Do you have something for parents? Anyone who's listening to this right now, or who's on their own, They're, they don't go to school, they don't go to college. Um, how can they contact you? How can you help them? So we're more than happy to do some of the programs with them to talk about some of the appearance ideals and body image things and cognitive dissonance um, where you kind of create 
uh, a questioning for them of, of some of these societal ideals is really how we change body image. But the ideal time to do that is actually during adolescence. The studies show that because they're more mutable then and they're changing and they're learning so much, this is the time, which is why our programs are then. It is harder for women who are older to change their feelings around food, educating ourselves, reading the books, understanding the new studies and, and the information that's out there, uh, reading up about intuitive eating, health at every size. Um, you know, feeling free to reach out to me at any time. Um, you could go to our website, atsmeatzmi.org, or you can email me, marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, at atsmi.org. I'm happy to help and give you book ideas um, and things like that. But uh, education is really the key. We have, to, we have to make changes. I mean, sadly, there are stories of women in hospice care, 80, over 80 years old, in hospice care, who refuse to eat cake, uh, desserts. They say it's decadent, it's fattening, I can't eat it. It's like, why? Yeah. So Horrible. it's so ingrained, it's so ingrained that it's going to take a revolution, but we're working on it. Working on it, exactly. Thank you so much, Marcy. I really appreciate everything you just told us. Uh, I think all the information you gave us is very relevant and it's very important. And I hope, and I know that anybody who's listening to this right now just got so much awareness, so much education and Every little step we take is going to help towards this change that we're talking about. So thank you so much for being here. And if you need to contact Dr. Marcy Forta, you can email her, your email address you just mentioned, and your website is atzmi.org. Yes. And thank you. Thank you for taking on these, these topics because if people don't bring them out in the open, people just don't realize what's going on. So I so appreciate that you do these kinds of podcasts. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and feel free to reach out with feedback and questions. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk and check out the link in my bio. Let's connect.